0: You'll know when you have a
1: wild woman. She'll practice her craft without boundaries. She is
2: truly autonomous. Her loyalty is only to the family she serves, a midwife who will not allow herself to be held back by a system she didn't create. This podcast is for the birth keepers who want to grow and change. We're open to learning through self-reflection and supportive community. We are creating the space to explore without judgment. We are remembering we were
1: born wild.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Born Wild podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sophia. Leah was out of birth all night, so hopefully, she is sleeping soundly. (laughs) And today, I have with me one of our new students, Carissa. We'll introduce her at the end of the podcast, Mm -hmm. um, but she's joining for her first time. Um, and yeah, we'll hand it right over to Rona to introduce yourself. Um, we have our notes say you're a relationship coach specializing in the perinatal period, which we're both like really excited to hear about Mm -hmm. because as midwives, we didn't realize that we were also therapists until we became midwives. (laughs) It's such a big part. It's such a huge change in people's lives. So we're really excited. We haven't covered this topic before, so Will you introduce yourself to our listeners?
0: Absolutely. So again, my name is Rona Behrens. I am a credentialed coach. I work with individuals, although mostly now, with couples and relationships. So I'm primarily a relationship coach. I've been coaching for a little more than 15 years and have had a major focus on the perinatal period with expecting a new parent's for a little more than a dozen years, probably 13, 14 maybe years now. And recently, a colleague of mine who's a therapist, who's a social worker, Tina Stanley and I published uh, a book called Fight Right for Your Baby, the how-to guide for expecting a new Parents to shift from conflict to connection. So this passion of mine for more than a dozen years has finally also resulted in sort of a tangible piece of work to re I'm really passionate about helping um expecting a new parents navigate what is a very challenging hopefully also joyous (laughs) uh, period of rapid change and new roles individually and in relationship
2: Mm -hmm. beautiful Um, are there uh like I'm curious how you landed on this book were you like supporting families and just recognize that this was a need or
0: it's a it's a combination so there are some books that exist out there my favorite book to this day is um john and julie gottman's and baby makes three Mm -hmm. i can't remember when they first published it it's been a long long time Mm -hmm. uh and and that book is John Gottman's work on conflict and he's done a bunch of research on the perinatal period and what happens conflict-wise there is, I think, quite remains quite important research. Uh, And it's a lot about sort of how to connect, how to stay connected. And Tina and I, both as in her case, a therapist, in my case, a relationship coach who work closely with parents prenatally and postpartum, we realized that the most support that new parents especially need, less so expecting parents, and I can say more about that in a moment, that the most support that new parents need is really about how to navigate an increase in conflict and a decrease in relationship satisfaction. And we felt that they need that support in bite-sized kinds of information. And so we wanted to create a resource where there are tools for expecting and especially new parents that are very short Mm. can be read in really short chunks can be tried out in really sort of easy go-to ways where it's really simple to access that information because now we're dealing with lack of sleep lack of time lack of energy and we thought we want to provide a resource that people can access quickly. And while I really love um, got the Gottmans and Baby Makes Three, I actually went to the Gottman Institute in Seattle and I did their Bringing Baby Home training after I started doing this work because I really think there's so much wonderful information in the work that they do. Their work is not bite-sized, and so we really, really wanted to provide information that's very accessible that gives expecting and new parents context in a really quick and easy to read and digest way even if one is sleep deprived and mm. you know in a lot of conflict and that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah that's great I, I know I wanted to start at expecting you know when you know it all begins and I assume it's different for everyone it depends if they're expecting their first or their fifth. Yes you know
0: that's for, like for sure. Yeah so let's talk about the sort of that difference between expecting and new parents and then about whether it's their first or the fifth or, or second or third. So I when I first started wanting to work with this demographic, with, with folks in the perinatal period, my daughter was about 18 months old and I began taking training in relationship coaching. I had done a separate training in individual coaching. And realized I wanted to work with relationships and realized the impact on my relationship of having uh, a, at that point, toddler. And so I started creating through this new training, part of what I started thinking about was creating a program for expecting couples with the goal being to help expecting parents prepare their relationship for a new baby unfortunate. So I did a wonderful pilot project. It went really well. I started to work with expecting couples. Yet what I found was most of the couples that were coming to me were the new parents. Why? Because expecting couples, I'm going to say myself included, when we were expecting our first child, we now have two, believe those of us, I think, who are intentional about becoming parents, those of us who are really trying to prepare to become parents, We might notice what is happening to our friends' relationships after they have a baby, yet we really believe that's not going to happen to us. Like, how could that possibly happen to us? We love each other so much. Yeah, we've got our issues, except, you know, this is going to be okay. And what we don't realize is that the research shows 9 in 10 couples report a drop in relationship satisfaction after the birth of their first child.
1: That's real. when the research,
0: <laughs> yes. It's when like the that, research the
2: period where you're just yes. like the eyes and
0: yeah. Well, you you imagine into understandably what is going to be fantastic about this. You're yearning for this. You're wanting this. The fantasy of it is huge. And we think that when we see couples, our friends, our relatives who don't navigate it well, we say, we think, well, they they just obviously got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And while there is research to say that the challenges we have prenatally are going to be the challenges we have in our relationships postpartum, there's also a lot of research that just the lack of sleep and what happens to our executive functioning when we don't have sleep has an impact on the way in which we see our partner. There's actually, There are actually studies of new parents. There are also studies just of couples without kids that the more sleep we get, the more positively we think about our relationships and feel about our relationships and the higher our relationship satisfaction, the less sleep we get, the less positively we think about the lower our relationship satisfaction, regardless of what's actually happening in our relationship. And we don't know that in advance if we haven't had a child. If we've had a child, we know very well that that we're going to be impacted that our relationship is going to be impacted and there's increasing research to suggest that our relationship satisfaction does not dip as far in some instances or it dips differently uh, after the birth of a second child however that prenatal period the expecting period before our first child we tend to idealize the impact on our relationship, understandably so. Also, if we look at how our culture prepares us for having a baby, the primary focus is on nesting. If we're going to work with a midwife, the primary focus is on how do we choose the right midwife? How do we you know, how do we choose the right doula? What, you know, how do we make the atmosphere of the birth as conducive as possible to a positive birth experience? Childbirth education really focuses on the immediate postpartum period. It's a rare childbirth education class that really gives time and attention to preparing your relationship for many reasons. One, usually childbirth educators get parents in the door for a very short period of time. And so you've got limited time and space to really introduce things. And often folks who are working, perinatal professionals, aren't trained. In this aren't really trained to work with the relational dynamics. So I mentioned that nine in 10 couples report a drop in relationship satisfaction after after the birth of their first child. And most of the relationship has been, I'm sorry, most of the research has been on first babies. Gottman's research is on a significant drop, two in three report a significant drop. So we're talking about, about, you know, I think it's 67% report a significant drop, not just a drop in relationship satisfaction in the first one to three years. Mm-hmm. So three years is still considered postpartum around this research. Mm-hmm. And that, I just really wanna emphasize that. Gottman's research shows, I think it's something like eight times the increase, an eight-time, eight-fold increase in conflict postpartum. Eightfold.
2: Yeah. And And it's it's, trying to remind our families like you're going to spend most of your time postpartum, you know, so a lot of the emphasis goes on prenatal and birth planning. But there's um, a woman in our area who created community supported postpartum worksheet that it's almost like a birth plan, but it's for the postpartum period so that you can talk about all these different areas that you could potentially want or need support and talk about it now before you're in it and you're sleep deprived and you're
0: beautiful you
2: know already feeling like you're struggling that you already have a plan in place
1: yeah and i'm a postpartum doula and did a nine-month training with rochelle garcia called innate traditions mm-hmm. and mm. i teach a four-part postpartum series prenatally to prepare women or birthing people for this period of their life because of it, it's not just that, but understanding the physiology behind it of like even if a, a male partner or a female partner is more present in the postpartum period, they've done brain mapping where the hormones in the male body will actually shift if they're more present in the postpartum period. For so sure. They'll get more oxytocin, they'll produce their form of prolactin, and this will change the conflict because the, and, and that's a cultural issue, right? Like in our society, we don't give, um, most people, most men don't get time off. As like our birthing partners so mm-hmm. just realizing the importance of like how you can structure that period to create different outcomes mm-hmm. for yourself to feel more connected through that because it could be a really yeah. maybe more connected right like these tools
2: that it takes work it most of the time isn't going to fall in your lap yeah you know
0: <laughs> right right yeah i really appreciate what you just said chris like the, the sort of planning so- side of this and how to maximize the connection. And a lot of it also has to do with postnatal expectations. So there's been historically research for heterosexual cisgender couples that prenatally expecting moms will have certain expectation of what participate, postpartum participation and partnership would look like from an expecting dad. And that there's a high degree of disconnect between those two things. In part, I would imagine, because there isn't a lot of planning in advance as to what will this look like tangibly. Some of that has to do with, I think many couples understandably really underestimate the scope of new tasks that are associated with the postpartum period. And part of it also has to do with, again, research shows this with cisgender heterosexual couples, that there's a high incidence of reversion to traditional gender roles in the postpartum period, regardless of how, quote, progressive, equitable, equality-minded straight couples, straight heterosexual couples are prior to, uh, cisgender couples are prior to the birth of their first child. So there's a lot of factors and forces that I think increase postpartum, what I would call, negative, unskilled, unproductive conflict. Because conflict is natural, conflict is normal. The idea is not to get rid of conflict, which I think is an impossibility. It is to find ways to more skillfully navigate conflict, more skillfully navigate disagreement, so that it becomes a potential place of connection as opposed to the disruption of connection. And unfortunately in the postpartum period, if we don't find ways to intervene in that disruption of connection, it can just get bigger and bigger and bigger and more problematic, Um, which doesn't necessarily mean the relationship ends. It does mean though that what is happening in the relationship is not being tended to, and then can potentially have a significantly negative impact on babies and children. And that's also part of what Pina and I really started to realize and wanted to share with a wider public, which is that this isn't just about oh, I'm not as satisfied with my relationship, and maybe saying that's okay. I want to really focus on being a parent. It's not solely that. It's that if if we the couple, the parents are increasingly engaging with a negative conflict style, that has a negative impact developmentally on the baby and our children as they get older. So that for me has been also a big impetus of really wanting to expand my reach in really getting the message out about the importance of figuring out how to better navigate that transition to parenthood so that we are more skilled in our conflict so that we really learn more productive conflict skills and if we are failing in that way which is understandable that we really know how to capably repair with each other and reconnect with each other. And so that we are bearing in mind our children's, our babies and children's developmental health and well-being, because that's really, for me, what's at stake in a bigger way, I think longer term and for for sure in a coupled way, so to speak, with our relationship satisfaction.
2: I'm curious what's like a, a common pattern you see, you know, all the way from expecting and, you know, how they handle conflict all the way to postpartum and how that shows up for them and for the baby to using the tools and then what you see unfold like the shifts that you see um and like the benefit for both them and the baby um or maybe even mentioning some of the tools that you
0: feel are the most useful yeah that's a that's a great question so as you said Earlier, it's likely individual variations. It's not always the same pattern. So for, so I'll I'll tell you a little bit. The, re- the research shows that again, in heterosexual cisgender couples, and I can say what research is like for gay and lesbian couples. I don't know of research yet around non-binary or trans um, couples. The heterosexual couples research shows that on average, and research is just about averages, I just think it's good because to share research because it gives us a, a bit of an anchor in terms of what happens for most folks, not all folks, always exceptions to the rule, which I really appreciate. The research shows that heterosexual cisgender women, moms, tend to experience a drop in relationship satisfaction faster than dads. With moms, it often happens within the first year. With dads, it'll t- tend to happen over that three-year trajectory. It's a it's a slower, slower burn, slower process. What it tends to look like for moms can vary. One significant sign that it's happening is when there's a real increase in gatekeeping. So gatekeeping being when one parent more often again, in heterosexual couples, cisgender moms, more often a stay at home parent, which in our culture is more often a mom, uh, starts to behave as if there's one right way to do things or that her way is the right way and adopts what we might call more of a parentified role with with her partner, where she, you know, mother knows best literally and figuratively where she's the one deciding on how to do things and where that often will result in dad trying le- less and less frequently. Uh, he's feeling defeated. He's feeling like he gets it wrong. He's being told he gets it wrong. That would be a way of, to use, you know, Tina in my vocabulary, quote, fighting wrong, where there's judgment, where there's an assumption of, quote, the right way to do things, where there isn't a recognition one of differences between us, which are not just gender differences, it can be temperament differences, it can be strategizing differences, it can be skill differences, where there's not a respect for differences and where there's an effort to try and push some, one partner pushing another partner into one way of doing things, which often results in the other partner giving up. So from a, that language of skillful conflict, giving up is actually a way of doing conflict unskillfully. So both partners are participating in that. Conflict avoidance is actually a style of conflict. We don't think of it that way. We think of it as a way of opting out of conflict, yet it's actually a way to be be actively involved in conflict by giving up, by acting as if I just want to avoid conflict. Yet by avoiding conflict, we often really fan the flames of it. So that's one
2: like, scenario. Uh, the silent treatment, that's probably a really.
0: <laughs> yes. So yes, Gottman's research has shown, and this is across a gamut of of couples, his research, including gay and lesbian couples, that there are four primary conflict styles in American culture. I, he does his research in the States. I'm from Canada originally, and I feel confident in saying that this also applies. So, let's say North America, I think this also applies. So, the four conflict styles that are most common, and these are in addition to the ones that we know are really destructive and damaging. So, the ones I'm going to mention now are not verbal or physical abuse, gaslighting, manipulation, you know, th- those kinds of things which we know for sure are very, very negative, very destructive and problematic. So if any of that's going on, we know there's trouble, seek help. Mm -hmm. The common ones, the run of the mill ones that most of us are really skilled at, and this is, um, three of them are in no particular order. The first one I am gonna give as the first is contempt. So disrespect, condescension, anything that smacks of contempt. That is incredibly destructive. In Gottman's research, where he's looked at married couples, it's the number one divorce predictor. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next three are in no particular order. Mm -hmm. Criticism, which we might say blame, nagging, right? Sort of the the finger pointing stuff. Defensiveness, which can be a reaction to contempt or criticism. It can also be its own thing. It's that, that phrase, you know, having a chip on one shoulder. that are already beginning from that defensive posture. It's not about me, I didn't do it. Why are you looking at me, right? That kind of way. And the third one is called stonewalling. So Sophia, what you just said, that is silent treatment. It is that it is a strategy of I'm going to refuse to engage around this. And often it shows up as fine, I'm done talking and the person may stay physically present, but stop talking or I'm out of here and they may leave physically. A really important distinction though, is I wanna distinguish that from what is called flooding. And my guess is you might know a little bit about that, which is a physiological process. Um, flooding is when we are, our, our stress hormones flood our autonomic nervous system. And it can be either flooding sympathetic nervous system or the parasympathetic nervous system. What it means is we either, we we, we either start to get really get into fight mode. So it's fight, flight, freeze, Fawn is the fourth uh, F that's been added more recently in research, which is people pleasing or appeasing. It's where our physiology overwhelms us and we cannot stop a particular response. So it can look a lot like stonewalling. But for the person who is not saying anything, it's that their executive functioning is literally shut down. They can't get words out. They can't have clear thoughts in their head. It can also sometimes look like someone who gets really angry and their that fight mode gets really heightened and they can't stop, where they can't stop chasing someone down to tell them what the, you know, no, you got to talk to me, what's wrong with you, where they cannot intervene in that. So that kind of inability physiologically to intervene can look a lot like a negative conflict style and can manifest that way, yet it actually has to do with a physiological overwhelm. So that's one thing with prenatally, when I work with expecting couples is to really check in and find out, how do you respond when you get triggered, because it's really important to know if one or both partners floods in the prenatal period because that can be part of the preparation i started to talk about sort of what the trajectory looked at and sort of went into a bunch of side so the trajectory might look like prenatally we may have may have our issues with each other but we don't need to talk about those issues we may have our pa- patterns of conflict that don't go great don't go terribly well but We've been able to handle it so far. We still love each other, so we're not going to look at that. So that's the most common thing. We're fine with each other. We're excited about the baby. This has been a mutual choice, so we're okay. We don't need to interrogate, get curious about how our patterns might change or worsen in the postpartum period. Baby is born. Again, there are various factors. Of course, if it's a difficult childbirth that can then create higher stress in the postpartum period, not just individually, not just in terms of the impact on parenting and how present we can be as parents, also relationship-wise. If we have a special needs baby, if we have a baby who's really struggling to latch on or, or ends up not being breastfed and needs to transition, you know, to to a bottle or to, you know formula all these different factors. Um, if there's a baby that ends up in NICU for a period of time, the stress not only in terms of what's happening with the baby but also what's happening to the couple. So there's so many factors. If there's a long recovery for the birthing parent uh, physically, if there are postpartum mood disorders. I mean, there's so many very all of these things will have an impact, not just individually. How we're able to show up and feel, and how we parent, it will th- these things will also have an impact in terms of our relationship. Even just run of the mill, sometimes a um, the non birthing partner or partners in in poly relationships might have trouble transitioning to becoming a parent. The transition not the change that has happened now I am a parent because there's a baby but what william bridges who's a cha- who is a change expert used to talk about as the inner reorientation that happens when we when a change happens so a transition is what needs to happen in order for me to embrace a change okay now I'm a parent now I'm my orientation is toward how do I parent this child so that can sometimes be glitchy in relationships and unless we can normalize that which i like to do with couples because it is a normal thing sometimes it's some of us are slower to make that transition than others if we don't then the birthing often it's the birthing parent that's like what's wrong with you and if it's a male partner then it's look how immature he is oh he's just being that typical guy he's not he's not embracing parenthood it's all on me of course it's all on me and if if we don't have greater sensitivity to that it's normal sometimes to have that transition to take that transitional time, then that conflict increases and it becomes finger pointing, it becomes that negative, what we would call, Tina and I would call fight wrong approach to things. And then that can only, that often only escalates, not can only, we can intervene in it, but without, often without help, without normalizing these kinds of things, it escalates. And so the distance between partners increases. when that negativity increases, it's very, very hard to intervene in it because we're in that cycle. And even under quote normal circumstances, if we're not dealing with sleep deprivation, we're not dealing with the physiological changes, potentially in both parents or more in all parents after birth, um, then what ends up happening is those, that negativity gets entrenched and it just builds on each other and it becomes harder and harder and harder to intervene in. I will say I see couples when often, when they have a midwife that says, please go get help. Mm -hmm. That's often when I, because if you think about it, who has time, energy, or money Mm -hmm. to go seek help in the postpartum period? And so it often goes underground. And then the most common time I see couples again, I see fewer couples in the immediate postpartum period, which means the first one to three years, I mostly see couples when their kids enter preschool or primary school. Like
2: when yeah. they finally got a break. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yes. And when a few of them anecdotally, I, I did an anecdotal um, query of a bunch of uh, preschool directors. And overwhelmingly, they were saying there are t- there's a ton of divorce that happens at that time. And I understand that. Yeah.
1: And you can totally understand it. With the children who are... Um having expressions in class that are like needing more attention with the parents who are struggling the most. (laughs)
0: I'm sure the research shows high conflict parenting has academic, social, emotional, relational, negative impacts, Mm -hmm. unfortunately.
2: And it's a whole chicken or the egg too. So you have a really hard kid, that's going to be a huge strain on your relationship. And if there's a huge strain on your relationship, it can like cross over to the kid. Yeah,
0: for sure, yeah. for sure.
2: Um, so like the tools in
0: yeah.
2: ex- when you're expecting,
0: yeah, uh,
2: are these like the same tools after the baby comes, or Are they just tools that can like help you be better prepared? Can you like kind of paint a picture of how someone would use the tools? And um, and obviously it sounds like just assume you need the tools <laughs> so you don't yeah. like wait until you spiral. I mean the vision of you know we talk about the snowball effect in terms of intervention, but it's almost the opposite. There's this like snowball effect as you like fall into needing intervention
0: um, Yeah, Yeah, so we very intentionally chose tools that would be helpful for a relationship at any stage of a relationship, including for couple, these two I'm thinking almost all of the tools are applicable for couples who don't have children, for relationships where there are no children involved. What we did in terms of structuring the book is we did try to structure the book around the five primary conflict areas that parents tend to encounter in their relationships. Most of them are also, as you'll hear them, conflict area, areas of conflict for. Couples that don't have kids as well at times. So they are money. That is one. I see couples who don't have children that money finances, one of the most common areas of conflict in many, many relationships that often gets heightened with the birth of a baby. And then subsequent children gets heightened even further, right? Because of the increase in costs Mm -hmm. get not dependent on having kids so for sure a topic, and tools that can be used prenatally for those couples who are already experiencing conflict, meaning negative conflict. So negative conflict being where you struggle to find constructive ways to resolve a disagreement, to resolve a difference. Positive conflict, productive conflict being we disagree, and we find ways to compromise, negotiate, navigate our differences that are not significantly disruptive to our relationship or our individual well-being
2: this is my day with All my right. children right here
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other thing i do i were i you know i do parent yeah. coaching yeah. too so that's a whole,
2: Learn that's a whole it other you your partner so that you can yes children through it yeah well
0: just yeah so just so you know our next book so this one's called fight right for your baby the next type ti- the title of the next one is fight right for your kids and with them too yeah, perfect, perfect. Yeah, yeah. So we're already working on that one. So money is the first to- topic area. The second is division of labor. Mm-hmm. So again, a topic that can be an area of conflict for relationships prior to having children becomes a much bigger one because now we've got childcare thrown into the mix. And interestingly, this is one of the primary areas where there is a difference in the research between heterosexual couples and gay and lesbian couples, that there is a much higher, uh on average, source of conflict for heterosexual couples around division of labor, childcare, and housework, than there is among gay and lesbian couple, couples who tend to be more equitable to begin with before the birth of a baby. And so on average, tend to navigate the addition of, the addition of the labor associated with the birth of a child a little more capably on average than heterosexual couples. Mm-hmm. Okay, so division of labor, primary area of conflict. Um, This is one that is specific to parents, which is conflict around gatekeeping and contrasting parenting styles. And parenting styles may even just be a difference between one parent, let's say it's a couple, one parent would like to bed share, the other would not. So So often that has to do with just differences in values, differences in priorities. Often it's one parent is very interested in attachment parenting, and has learned about the importance of that kind of connection, physical proximate connection to child development. And the other parent, it's not that the other parent doesn't think that's important. What often happens is the other parent is also seeing the importance of maintaining the integrity of our relationship and worrying that the the integrity of our relationship will be negatively impacted if if we are co-sleeping. and what ends up happening is that people get split, and there's an assumption that there's only one or the other way. And people are thinking, you know, how can you not see it my way? And that can become a real, really significant entrenched place for a negative conflict. So that's.
2: Yeah, we see it even. The third topic. Um, even expecting parents. It can yep. go from somebody wants a home birth, somebody else doesn't feel safe, yep. you know, yep. um, things like that. Um, Yeah. Perfect example.
0: So we live in a culture where there's a kind of binary approach to conflict, right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And we are not very skilled at understanding that each person is trying to honor certain values. So values being standards, traits, qualities, experiences, philosophies that they believe are really important and will be important to their individual satisfaction, perhaps relationship satisfaction, Perhaps to their parenting satisfaction. So, fa- helping couples find ways to have a more nuanced approach to those differences um, can be really helpful. And we try and do that in the book through the tools, through our explanation of all of this. It's what I do. I have a program for couples, expecting couples to help prepare their relationship for a baby that I do one on two or one on, you know, more if it's a larger relationship dynamic. Um, that I do and I can do it remotely as a coach. So there are other ways to do it. There's a bringing baby home program, which can help people do, which I think are, is usually a couple of weekends uh, prenatally. So there are lots of ways to do this. And once you're postpartum, this I think this book offers some clear ways to navigate and intervene. The other topics are number four, sex and intimacy. Again, another one that can be an issue without kids for couples around Uh, a source of being a source of conflict, a source of distinct difference, often a source of difference, different desires, different ways of responding desires, what we know of sort of like responsive desire versus spontaneous desire, which is a, a really important distinction that the research and science is telling us. Some of us just do something that gets us hot and some of us we need to be put in an environment, in a circumstance, have a conversation, In order to, it's like a slower burn, have to feel desire. Those are normal things. We as a culture generally don't talk about those differences. And so sex and intimacy become an area of conflict, of negative conflict.
2: Or even you just need all your basic human needs met before you can even go there. (laughs) You know, sometimes, you know, and like if that piece isn't even happening, like you can't even broach that that topic.
0: True, which would still be an, an example of responsive desire. Mm-hmm. So responsive desire, postpartum may change. It may like, we may have like a bigger list of what needs to be in place mm-hmm. for us to go there. Someone with spontaneous desire may not care that mm-hmm. the laundry hasn't been done, that the baby hasn't been fed. I mean, mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. I mean, or that, you know, that we might start in the baby. It might be time for feeding the baby. I don't mean to say that a partner doesn't <laughs> care that the baby is yeah, but I just mean like that. Let's say we know in about a half an hour the baby's gonna to want to be fed. For the partner with spontaneous so I was like, oh, we got a half an hour for the other partner. It's like, are you kidding? No, no, no. There's so many things that you know haven't gotten done that I need to do in this half an hour in order to get there. So again, normalizing that. And then the last topic, which again can be a topic for non-parents, but often becomes a more heightened topic for parents is in-laws and extended family and sort of conflict that tends to happen around. How do we navigate holidays? it just becomes a different thing. How do we navigate, you know, your mother is really trying to tell me how to parent and I'm not appreciating that. Can you please do something about it? Sort of that heightened area of conflict. And then we talk about how there are other factors that can contribute. And there certainly can be other areas of conflict. Yet each of the tools, I think there are very, very few t- tools in the book. And I think we have we have 40 something plus tools in the book. Almost all of them are not topic specific. We've just put them in different topic areas to look to to give illustrations of how you could use them. They are applicable across topics. And that's sort of, we have that one size doesn't fit all um, kind of philosophy, which is, okay, if this tool doesn't work here, try it over here. If this tool doesn't, take another tool. And that's why we wanted to make most of them bite-sized tools so that it wouldn't be too overwhelming to keep trying Mm -hmm. to find a tool or tools that help.
2: Could you give an example
0: of what a tool would look like? Yeah. So some some of them are as simple as what what I would call as a coach, a powerful question. So a powerful question would be something like, what if we're both right? Mm -hmm. You want a bed share? I want a crib in another room. Mm -hmm. What if we're both right? What if this isn't about I'm right and you're wrong? What if we're both right? How do we handle this if we both have valid points? And if we can just begin with what if we're both right, then we can ask another important question, which is a different tool. What's important to you about that? What's important to you about bed sharing? What do you want to achieve by that? What's important to you about having a crib in a different room and our baby being separated from us? what are you hoping the outcome would be? And really that kind of listening to hear, listening to understand, listening empathically, as opposed to listening to rebut, listening to argue.
1: Curiosity, so we,
0: mm-hmm. curiosity, true, curiosity. Curiosity. true ge- you're right. Actually curious. Yeah. What I would say is genuine curiosity, as opposed to that sort of like faux curiosity, which is like, I'm just asking this so I can get to the place where I get to tell you what I want and what's important to me and why 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 my way of doing things is the right way. Yeah. yeah. So genuine curiosity is true openness to hearing and learning and understanding and empathizing with my partner, not just even if my partner is different from me, especially if my partner is different from me, to not judge those differences and that I think is the hardest part of all of this mm-hmm. yeah. is to really deepen our understanding that it's okay to be different it's part of what drew us to each other it's usually what attracted us to the other person and it's often what then drives us crazy and gets us into conflict
2: <laughs> yeah and it sounds like I love that there's something specific for partners that probably also these tools could be useful for to your mother or you know like anything because we hear often that you know i'm gonna do it my way but my mom is just like won't let up about this you know like having the baby in the bed with me she thinks it's dangerous or whatever but being able to like stimulate these conversations with people who aren't just your partner
0: for sure all of this is these are the same tools regardless of context when i was trained as a relationship coach i was trained for personal and professional relationships Mm -hmm. So I sometimes will work with business partners. It's the same tools. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. It's
0: the same tools, just applied in a different context. So that's what's wonderful about this. The book is your baby. (laughs) Yes, the book. Yes, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So that's the important thing that it's, it's all of this is applicable for expecting parents. All of it's applicable for new parents. All of it's applicable for um, seasoned parents. All of it's applicable for um, Mm -hmm. for non-parents. All of it's applicable, even if you're not in a relationship, yet you have colleagues, yet you have family members or friends that you wanna navigate challenging conversations with. It's all about how do we fight right, fight capably, fight in a way, disagree in a way where we can honor differences, respect differences and cultivate deeper and greater connection and intimacy. Despite Despite those differences and perhaps using those differences as ways to connect and expand our empathy expand our genuine curiosity expand our capacity for really holding a lot of paradox a lot of complexity a lot of contrasting ways of being in the world
2: and practicing these tools ideally when you're expecting so that you have some groundwork for when you are tired and things feel harder um yeah, and, and do, are there any tools that would be postpartum that like, would it make sense for the expected or they're all pretty much the same and just the topics maybe would be slightly different?
0: I I actually think that it's just what you just said. Yeah. It's just what you just said, Sophia. I think, I think all of this is applicable. I think what's different in the book, we have a section near the end, sort of an appendix, mm-hmm. which are deeper dive kinds of tools. So to really look about, really understand how shame operates in our culture, um, which is a more detailed thing, values exploration. I just talked about what values are to really deepen your understanding of what your values are, for example. Um, learn, really learning about reactive selves, the parts of us that are should and shouldn't, parts that really tend to get triggered under high stress. Those are deeper dive kinds of tools. And so the the ideal for me is for expecting couples to read the book and to get to that deeper dive section and do the deeper dive tools in advance of becoming parents. So I would say that section is much more for expecting couples than new parents or seasoned parents just because it t- those tools take more time, more thought, more energy. Um, and by the time we've, for sure we've got infants or toddlers, I think there's just, there isn't that spaciousness. The shorter tools are more appropriate there. So I think that would be the only distinction I would say in the book.
2: Okay, that's helpful.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, cool. thank you so much. Is there anything else that you feel like is important to talk about that we didn't touch on? That's either in the book or
0: I think the one thing I would say for the, you know, I know you have an audience of professionals. I assume there are also some some uh, expecting a new new parents who listen to this that sometimes we will not try something for ourselves. Sometimes we won't even try it for our relationship well-being. We will, however, try it for our kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We will try and shift things. We will try and prepare for things because of our, if we're expecting parents, because of the uh, anticipating wanting to support the well-being of our baby. So for example, for the expecting um, you know, birthing parents out there, if you're really paying attention to, you know, exercise, if you're paying attention to what foods you're eating, if you're pay- paying attention to how much sleep you're trying to get, doing your best to get, if you're paying attention to trying to cultivate, you know, calmness and mindfulness practices, that I want to just say, this is also part of that, mm-hmm. trying to cultivate the well-being of your, of your baby. Um, and of your child and children. And once the baby's here and you're so focused on parenting well-being, the best parent you could be, that really tending to your relationship is, again, another way to really tend to your child's well-being or your children's well-being if you have more than one. That really relationship work is parenting work. Mm -hmm. And as a culture, we're not good at conveying that message to expecting new or seasoned parents. So I think that's the biggest thing I want to say.
2: And just in case it's not clear, it sounds like this isn't something that you have to get your partner on board with to start. Like you could just be the one to decide, I'm going to read this book. This will be helpful, even if they're not interested in reading it and doing the tools
0: to the not only are you right we actually have a section in the book which is I my them? spouse won't read my spouse won't read this book yeah. what do I do and we articulate the tools that are especially well oriented towards individual effort right
1: great. great
0: so a hundred percent thank you so but much for mentioning that
2: science like saying but like yes you know something like that well and, and I think you're right don't Do anything. And it's like,
1: no, no, no. You can still do it.
2: I love this. Sure.
1: That I was an outdoor educator with kids for a long time. And we used this method called the coyote way, where you never told kids like, we're going to do a craft now and make tule boats. You would just start doing it. And then the kids who were interested would come over. And the whole idea is like we embody what we want to see in the relationship or the dynamic that we're creating. And so I feel like that's what being named here. And of course there are stubborn folk, but like, By someone embodying that in a relationship, you really create Mm -hmm. like a draw because you're showing compassion and connecting with them. They'll feel more seen and encouraged Mm -hmm. to also be like, okay, what's this book? Yeah. Yeah. And if anything, your relationship better just on your half for showing up in that way.
0: Awesome. Yeah. You're both a hundred percent right, I -hmm. think. And while we cannot guarantee that us doing the work will Of course. You know, we cannot ensure or guarantee that our partner or partners will show up to that work. What we can guarantee by us doing the work is that we will be calmer. We will be in greater integrity within ourselves. Mm -hmm. We will be practicing and modeling skills for our baby or children that will be lifelong skills. So that's the other part of it. What do we want to model? Yeah, for this baby that we're expecting or this baby that's here or this baby and our older children's our older children. Um, What you know, what what do we want relation, a relationship to look like for them? And if I, I can't control my partner, what I can control is what do I want to model as how do I respond when things are challenging with my partner? How do I want to repair Mm-hmm. When I haven't shown up in integrity and with my best self, which of course is totally normal mm-hmm. that we show up reactively and get triggered. So how do we, again, how do we want to model it? And what can we do regardless of how our partner does or doesn't show up for sure? Yeah,
2: the responsibility, I was just talking to my son about that, that you don't have control over how your sister is, but you have control over you, you know, and how you're going to show up and um but that's all you can focus on and I think it keeps the blame away from but she you know it's like yeah but what about you like you you can't control she you can control you for the most
0: sure.
1: part. a lot of <laughs> kids can't yeah. yeah learning well have a relationship with that
0: yeah yeah and the but she is a perfect example of how defensiveness is a very it's a very common understandable go-to conflict style of how do we stay in conflict mm-hmm. and so it, it is a life. These are lifelong skills, mm-hmm. which, you know, when I say that, and part of me is like, okay, great. So I don't have to get it right, right away. And another part of me is bummer. Really? Mm-hmm. This is about working on this for a long time. And both are true. Yeah. My you daughter know,
2: in therapy and I can just see the difference it's making. Recently, she her and her brother got in a huge fight she came to me and um, I had just woken up so I was like just stay away from each other right now let me wake up um, and she's like but I want to play with him and I was like okay we'll go see if you can fix it and I came back in the room later and and she was like yeah I throw I had thrown all his Legos into his bin I was trying to help him clean up but now they're all mixed up and he can't find them and I was like, oh, you know, I'm glad you explained that to him. And she's like, actually, if I'm being honest, I did it because I was angry, but I'm trying to fix it. And we're trying to Aww. find the pieces. And I was just like, I am so proud of you. You should be so proud of yourself, like for
0: wow. like
2: admitting to that and then trying to do the repair, you know, I was like, beautiful. You know, therapy. Yeah. <laughs> stardom, yes. Beautiful.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, okay. And think about how often adults don't do that raising my hands <laughs> you know we're
2: all we're all me too I'm here too <laughs> yeah yeah for sure uh, well thank you so much for sharing we'll we'll leave everything in the show notes but just on air is there any ways people can reach out and contact you if they want that
0: for sure so my website is ronabarrens.com. so r h o n a b e r e n s dot com. Mm-hmm if they want to read a little bit more specifically about this book and about future books. And also we've got a Q&A, uh, ask the authors QA on fightrightbooks.com. So that's another way to reach me and they can just contact me that way. So those are, I think, the two primary ways to do so.
2: Thank you so much for sharing.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Hello,
2: everyone. We're back. We just wanted to introduce Carissa, who's our new student. Um, Normally, we would have done it before the interview, but we're mixing it up. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll just let you introduce yourself and just kind of share about how you,
1: you know, came into midwifery. Beautiful. Hi, I'm Carissa, and wow, I've been on such a journey to become a midwife. I, the first thing I ever wanted to do as a kid was deliver babies, and I was obsessed with Animal Planet's birthing series that they had, and TLC, It's a Birth Story, I would watch mm-hmm. them as my, instead of cartoons. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I kind of forgot about it once I was in high school, in college, and thought I wanted to be a doctor, mm-hmm. and then I read The Red Tent, and I was 22, I remember reading it in bed, and it just reawoken this dream. And I don't think I ever really had the word midwife before. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a hospital birth. I think my mom was a hospital birth. I'm a cesarean actually, so like very removed from that. Um, but yeah, once I was reading Red pen, it was all all just like woke up inside mm-hmm. of me. And, like yes, please. Yeah, and from that point, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a midwife, and the whole. was just like how do I be a midwife and at first thought I would become a certified nurse midwife and so wanted to be a bridge to bring herbal medicine into hospitals again so I became a clinical herbalist first with the intention of them becoming a certified nurse midwife and creating a program that infused holistic approaches into hospital settings surrounding birth and then uh, did all that? Did my prereqs were certified in nursing midwifery applied and in applying realized I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> don't want to be under fluorescent lighting. Don't want to be swimming against the the system. Mm-hmm. Um, like in doing that would be for others' benefit, not for your own benefit. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and ultimately, like I have become a more sensitive being over time. So like things like fluorescent lighting or giving people medicines that I don't feel in in alignment. I just felt that it was lacking integrity mm-hmm. of what felt right for me and myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would cause me a lot more suffering and I wouldn't be actually able to serve at my greatest capacity mm-hmm. through being a certified nurse midwife within a hospital setting. It was always my intention to only do that for a couple of years and then come out of it and have my own practice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then. I have been a doula and a postpartum doula and a clinical herbalist all throughout that and also a personal chef. So mixing those things in, um, yeah, and currently am a postpartum doula in the Bay Area and a doula and offer postpartum cooking for people. And then started. I moved here in the past year and started looking for teachers and uh, preceptors as we call Mm -hmm. it, someone who could guide me through the journey of becoming a midwife and found um, born Wild and pretty much just spent two days listening to your podcast. I think it was like 15 in <laughs> two days. And I was like, this is so cool. <laughs> I really want to meet them. And then you emailed you Sophia and you're mm-hmm. like, we have students, but you can come in on Monday. And I was like, I have no idea what that means, but I'm showing up on Monday <laughs> and then came in on Monday and introduced myself. And then eventually a space opened up mm-hmm. and pretty quickly, pretty pretty quickly yeah. Yeah. after that. And I felt really blessed because it was feeling like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to find anybody in the next year to start my student Mm -hmm. midwifery training. So yeah, Yeah. here I am. And,
2: and you're cooking postpartum meals for me. I am. (laughs) I am. I make you lunch every day. Well, three days a week when I'm I was like, I would rather pay you than, than the grocery store or whatever to, to feed me because of course I run out of the house every day without meals for myself. So it's been so great.
1: I was like, I can help nourish you, Cynthia. Yes, you would like some lunch.
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's a tip for any midwife out there. If I'm (laughs) students, cook really well. Yes,
1: so convenient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we're really excited to have you on. Mm -hmm. Yay! I'm excited to be here. Yay!
2: everyone that's it for today
1: thank you for listening to the born wild podcast if you enjoy our podcast please rate review and subscribe every week to get the
2: latest one and please follow us on instagram at born wild podcast as well as facebook you can also write to us at info at born wild midwifery.com as well as our website born wild midwifery.com
1: and remember Stay wild.